Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Scott Roche's Omniverse. This week is a prime example of what good things can happen when you give your story to your fellow creators to do a podcast version. You know, when I when I approached the people that you'll be hearing over the coming weeks and months about this project, you know, I said, basically, I just want you to do a straight read of my story. Don't put a lot of time into it or effort into it other than just giving me a good read because I don't want to overly burden you. And when you give creative people uh, your stuff and tell them to run with it, uh, sometimes they put in the extra effort, and James did that here, and I was so pleased. He got uh, Veronica Jagir, one of my favorite voice actresses, to do the female parts, and he also used some music available from Incompetech.com to add a little oral, that's oral with an A-U, spice to the mix. Uh, so for those of you that aren't familiar with Mr. Keeling or his work, um, he is a working writer hailing from the frozen tundra of Minnesota. James juggles his time between being a husband, father of four lovely daughters, and a computer professional. Mr. Keeling has been published online by Flying Island Press. More information is available via his website at www.jameskeeling.com. I had the pleasure of meeting James at Balticon last year. I'm hoping that he'll be there this year. Um, and uh, he's uh, quite, a, quite a, an interesting and friendly and unique individual. And uh, it's been nice to get to know him since then over the past year. And uh, I've been listening to Compensating Controls, which is his uh, podcast novel project, and it is fabulous. Uh, if you like the feel that uh, he's got going on in this particular story, then you probably like how he uses music and voices in his own podcast. So I strongly suggest that you go check it out. I and if you're a geek like me, then you'll you'll like the tech aspects of it. It's a technological thriller, uh, lots of intrigue, and quite entertaining. I'll be putting up a review at uh, scottroche.com slash thoughts in the near future once I finish it. So, without further ado, let's get on to this week's podcast story. Bitter Release by Scott Roche Read by James Keeling and Veronica Jaguer Shells whistled in the grim distance, growing ever closer as Will Thompson ran down the trench for cover. All of his mates had bought it. It was just him for miles in either direction, as far as he knew. Sappers had found a network of caves when they built these particular fortifications. You couldn't go very far back into them before they petered out, but they were solid. He slid down the ladder, which canted at a 45 degree angle, into the darkness. Only an oil lamp beat back the foul dark of the caves. But it was better than waiting in the rain for death to come. He took the bucket off his head, revealing close shorn blonde hair. The grinding of the hand-cranked radio filled the emptiness as he tried to raise someone. His only answer was static. The Jerry's wouldn't try to take this position until daybreak, so he had at least a few more hours to live. The cot groaned under his weight and he slid the green box with the red cross across the rock floor to his feet. 
The box showed up when he was looking for bandages for O'Malley. The Irish git didn't need them anymore. His dead eyes staring into the clouds, his slack mouth probably filled with rainwater. Opening the case revealed a half dozen green bottles wrapped in linen. He had unwrapped one earlier and uncorked it out of curiosity when he'd seen the French writing declaring it a tremblement de terre, and the buxom green-skinned woman depicted beneath that. Waving it beneath his nose, the bitterness made him cough. Behind the bitterness, he caught the unmistakable bite of brandy. One of the medics, Francois no doubt, had hidden this as part of a stash. Thompson never learned the language, but liqueur was liqueur. He decided not to drink it earlier, but that was when they still had a fighting chance. Now he figured he might as well get drunk. Maybe even drink himself to death. Better than a bayonet to the guts. And Uncle Les had looked mighty happy when he died stone drunk. He shook the thought from his head. He was too young to go out this way. There was still a chance that he could raise someone. Nonetheless, Thompson tipped the bottle to his lips and took a deep draught. It tasted a bit like licorice-flavored bile, but no worse than what passed for rations out here. The brandy warmed his gut, spreading fingers of fire through his body. Another slug went down and the bottle clinked against stone as he turned back to the radio. Static flooded the cave again. Damn you, come on. Someone has to be out there. Another shell screamed in, and he covered his ears. The explosion that rocked his hideaway was followed by a liquid-sucking sound. His eyes bugged as gray-green mud poured into the hole, his only route back to the surface. He scrambled to the back of the cave to avoid the mudslide. It didn't last very long, but it stopped only because wood and rock from the reinforcing structure of the trenches corked the hole. Shit, I'm buggered now. Well, on the bright side, the Jerrys aren't going to find me. Training kicked his brain into survival mode. A quick scavenge revealed enough tinned food and water to last quite a while. Light wouldn't be a problem as there was oil enough for the lamps. The wire leading from the radio to the antenna above ground was still attached. If the antenna itself was intact, he could still summon help. He grabbed the green bottle and took another swig. Gah! It tasted absolutely horrid, but it lightened his spirits. Before long, he had finished three-quarters of the bottle. That on an empty stomach made his eyelids heavy. Guess I'll have a little shut-eye. The cot felt like his nan's feather bed, the thin drab blanket a quilt. Sleep jumped on the man like a rabid tiger. When his eyes opened, he saw the aged yellow curtains of his bedroom at home. Late autumn sunlight poured like treacle through the windows. He was swaddled in blankets and felt ice cold and blazing hot and hollowed out all at the same time. Home. A tremulous adolescent voice escaped his lips. The whitewashed oak door to his room opened, revealing the whippet-like body of his brother, dressed out in drabs. Creaks and groans muttered from the floor as Clive crossed young Will's bed and sat on the edge. Morning, champ, and how are you this fine morning? Been better. Thompson relished seeing his brother in the bloom of life, and he now knew that this was the last time he had seen his brother at the family farm in Hampstead. A fall claimed Clive's life not long after this. Rest easy, then, and you'll be on the other side of the spot in no time. He rose to leave. Wait, don't go. A trembling hand stretched out. Clive stopped at the door and shook his head. 
but you need your rest, Will. Won't, won't see you again. His lips quivered. Nonsense. I'm just off to drill for a bit. I'll be back on Christmas holiday. Thompson struggled to sit up. No, no, you won't. You'll die. You'll die. Die? Rubbish. Clive's jaw set firmly. No, you will. You'll, you'll die falling from a tower. Tears sprung from his pale blue eyes and his voice thickened. The elder brother's face softened and he crossed back to the bed. Easy now. Rest easy. The doctor said not to get excited. What's all this about me dying? I can't explain. I, I just know you will. Tears crept down his flushed face. I, I saw it in a dream. There now, lie back. Clive helped his little brother recline and got a cool cloth from the bowl of water beside the bed. The water soothed Thompson's fevered brow. I'm not going to die for a long time yet. Our kids will play cricket together while we sit and sip tea on the lawn and moan about the weather. He beamed down at the boy. You and I will be the best dads and uncles. Just wait. Thomas struggled to answer. He wanted to warn him, stop him. But the fever drug him back under layers of increasingly darker gray. Finally, all was black. When his eyes opened this time, only wet smells and dripping let him know that he was back in the cave. Fingers fumbled around looking for the lamp or a book of matches. Panic started to mount, but then he remembered the matchbook in his pocket. Light almost blinded him as he struck a match. Even with its short life, he was able to recover the extra lamp and get the globe off. The next match got it lit, and he breathed out a sigh. The ultimate blackness would drive him mad if he were in it too long. His mouth tasted like someone had used it for an ash dump, and his head ached dully. Moments later, he had a tin of rations and some water in front of him. Canned meat and biscuits weren't much of a meal, but they would do for the moment. It satiated his hunger, but did little for the taste in his mouth. A canteen full of water helped that a bit, though the licorice taste still lingered like bad perfume. As soon as he got the water down, the headache tripled and his stomach made a wicked rumbling noise. The surest cure for a hangover was more of the same. His stomach might not like it, but the pain in his head kept increasing. He rapidly downed the last of the green bottle's contents, and the headache vanished. The taste wasn't nearly as bad this time. Either he was growing accustomed to the bitterness, or it was killing his taste buds. Still thirsty, he found another bottle and popped the cork. In no time, the liquid's level was near the bottom of the label. After a resounding belch filled the chamber, his stomach felt better, and he giggled a bit at the echo. The alcohol had washed away the last of the anxiety from the dream, and Thompson felt positively buoyant. The feeling didn't last very long after he tried the radio again. He still heard only static, and was beginning to think that the antenna had snapped off. It could still be atmospheric conditions, if the storm was raging. No noise filtered down through the mud and stone, so he had no idea. Getting up from the radio, he discovered that the bottle was empty. He shrugged and put the bottle next to the first one, a feeling that no one would ever find him and that he would die down here alone overtook him. 
and he wept. It's going to be all right, little brother. The flat voice came from the ether and felt like a dash of cold water in his face. Tears dried up, and he looked around like a startled animal. It's that dream. Just a, a dream's echo. Thompson sat back on the cot and unwrapped another bottle. The first swallow was down before he even knew the cork was out. Glass wrapped his teeth as he jerked it out. He recorked it and set the bottle down. He lay down again and thought about sleep. It didn't come easily this time and wouldn't any time soon. The bottle called to him, promising respite. I'm not gonna give in to this thing. He tried playing solitaire by the lamp's light, but couldn't focus. Visions of the possibility of warning Clive danced in his brain. Well, I've got naught else to do. As soon as the bottle got to his lips, he went after it like a hungry baby. Going down, it was a cleansing fire, and it blossomed in his stomach. The taste didn't even register. Once again, his eyes closed, and he drifted off almost immediately. His eyes opened to reveal the roof of the cave. At first, he thought nothing had changed, but he realized that the rock was growing closer. Looking down, he saw his body on the cot, arms crossed. Returning his gaze upward, he saw that the ceiling was almost on him. His arm thrust forward to stop the advance. It passed through the solid mass, disappearing up to his elbow in seconds, and kept going. Just before he passed through, he screamed, but no sound came out. His vision went murky for a moment, but soon cleared as Thompson found himself flying over the battlefield. Bodies were strewn about, cast here and there by cannon. Broken limbs, blood, and carrion stretched as far as the eye could see. Where the cave mouth had been, he saw nothing but a field of mud and shattered rock. Germans marched across the broken field, searching for anything of value amongst the dead. Thompson swooped down and came to a rest, beside Captain Haggerty. The old man had been an incredible mentor to him. Now his body lay mangled by an enemy round. This close to a dead body, he should be able to smell the blood and, and gunpowder. But there was nothing. The cold wind blowing across the fields likewise had no effect on him. He felt as though he should be crying at the sense of loss. Even that part of him was as dead as a captain. Hello, my dearest brother, came a voice as chill as the north wind, but as welcome as spring rain. Thompson slowly turned to see his brother standing just a few feet away. Clive's body was translucent and in an advanced state of decomposition, but Will could still make out details. Clive, what happened? Why, I'm dead, of course. A slight smile played at the corners of his mouth. Confusion filled Thompson's brain with muslin. I saw your body at the funeral, and it was whole and sound. You see me as I am now, lying in the grave, moldering. The specter gestured at the death all around. Am I dead, too? Relief and fear mixed in his voice. No, little one. You are still among the living. But for how long, I can't say. 
He drew closer. You tried so hard to help me, Will. Now it's my turn. Did I really warn you? I thought that was all a dream. Who can explain these things? Yes, you really did. But I ignored your ramblings as those of a sick little boy. I want to help you now. You must get out of the ground. But I, I can't. Will shook his head. I'm trapped. Follow the Green Fairy. She will lead you out. Green Fairy? What's that? Before Clive could answer, everything began to fade, and Thompson felt himself pulled back to the underground. His eyes snapped open, and the lamplight revealed that nothing had changed. He sat up and was plagued by the headache and dry mouth again. Three remaining bottles sat swaddled in canvas and teased him. The thought of drinking water or eating any more tinned beef made him nauseous. Time ceased to have any meaning. No doubt the lamp oil would need to be refilled. A series of mindless tasks along those lines filled what could have easily been minutes or hours. Grumbling from his stomach reminded him of the necessity for food, but it still didn't appeal to him. He opened a tin anyway and tried to eat. It was flat on his tongue. The only thing that could appease his hunger was the bilious liquid in those bottles. It looked like he might indeed drink himself to death. He undressed one of them and looked at the bottle again. A voluptuous winged woman seemed to wink at him from the label. She was dressed in diaphanous green layers, revealing nothing and promising everything. You must be the uh, green fairy I've heard so much about. How a painted woman could help him, he had no idea. Death would be the only result of any further encounter with the drink. Yet if he couldn't trust his brother, whom could he trust? Thompson pulled the cork with his teeth and drank down the bitter nectar. The last three bottles went down with astonishing speed. Once again, his body filled with a feeling of peace and the cave spun into blackness. His eyes opened, and a blaze of wild flowers filled a meadow that stretched forever. The beautiful red-headed fairy creature lounged on a blanket stretched out on the grass. A picnic basket overflowing with fruit, roasted chicken, and loaves of bread sat by her feet. She gestured for him to sit on the blanket beside her. He practically fell down in his eagerness. Welcome to my world, Will. You will find peace here. Eat, my beloved. You are starved. His appetite returned with a vengeance, and he tore into the food. Crumbs of bread and orange rinds began to litter the blanket. Slow down, my love. You have time. He stopped and put the food down. How long have I been in the ground? Days and days. The men above have come and gone. But let us not talk of these things. Jasmine and Vanilla filled the air around this creature, stirring his heart. His hand reached out for her shoulder, and she drew him into an embrace. He sobbed into her breast like a lost child. 
I know, mon cher. You have seen such awfulness in your short time. Let me take it all from you. The fairy woman kissed and stroked his hair as Thompson quieted. Birdsong filled the trees and a warm breeze stirred the grass. They spent that afternoon like two young lovers and time bled away. The evening came with a moon and stars that one could read by. My brother said that you could lead me to safety, that you would help me. I will help you, my love. Help you as I have helped so many. The world is an evil place, and I want to take you from it. She caressed his face. Is this really happening? He asked as the crickets chirped their age-old song. It is as real as you want it to be, love. Stay with me and share this bliss away from man's war. She lifted up on her elbow and stared down into his eyes. Her skin was like the finest porcelain. Will you? I don't want to die up there. I want this life. He lifted his head from the grass and drank deep of her kisses. The crunch of shovels from above echoed down from the cave's original entrance. Grunting and groaning preceded a blast of light as the stones were lifted away. I told you the cave was here. Those maps I found in the library were right all along. Shut up, Matthew. You like to brag too much. A rope dropped down into the darkness, followed by a glow stick. The two college students rappelled down the ropes, avoiding the ruins of a ladder that had once led to the top. Marie frowned at the dust in the air. She was glad that the bandana protected her dark hair from the dirt, and she turned on her small flashlight. So, this was a bunker during the First War, huh? Yeah, there was a network of trenches that the Germans had overtaken, but they never found this. It was buried by a cannon blast. Marie screamed as her light played over what appeared to be a body on some green cloth. My god! Easy, girl, he can't hurt you. Must have been down here when the place got buried. He unclipped his own light from his belt and went closer. That's odd. What? Come over here and look at this. God, no. You could not get me over there for all the tea in China. Oh, don't be such a goose. He can't hurt you. Come here. The young lady crept forward and played her light over the rickety bed. On it lay an empty uniform that she had mistaken for a body. She picked up the old bottle resting beside it and marveled at the beautiful couple on its label. Compensating Controls, a podcast novel by author James Keeling. Nicholas Edgewood had a great life, a job he enjoyed, a new girlfriend. Then it all changed. Framed for a cybercrime he did not commit. Betrayed at every turn. Forced to run for his life. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit www.jameskeeling.com. When there's nowhere left to turn, you'd better run.